This is the, as uh, Mary was saying in her little introduction, this is the, the, uh, the last of this introductory series uh, of six sessions here in Ukiah. Um, so that uh, the, the, type, the, uh, the aim has been to help, e- to let each uh, session stand on its own uh, as well as to be a, a sort of progressive uh, collection. Um, and so this evening, the the uh, the title of the of the um, well, the theme of the evening is hurdles and pitfalls. So this um, might sound like all the bad news, <laughs> all the good stuff has happened already, and and uh, this is the um, uh, addressing the the kind of difficulties and nastinesses, the uh, the headaches that come with trying to practice meditation. But um, hopefully. As I, I talk a little bit to introduce the evening, you'll get a sense for um, it's actually very, very useful to hear about uh, some of the the difficulties and uh, some mean, ways and means that we can use and develop to, to counteract those. Um, also, uh, these evenings are for all of you. Uh, so if there are things that I say, if I kind of lapse into too much uh, Buddhist jargon and um, presume the, the, the knowledge or understanding of, of, you, of uh, folks is, uh, is too much, then just do stop me and, and I'll ask for something to be clarified because it, the, the point is to help make things a bit more um, uh, understandable, useful, and to be able to take some of these med- themes of meditation and help them help our lives to be lived more peacefully, more uh, joyfully, and with greater understanding. So please don't be shy uh, that uh, it really is for you so that uh, there's no question that's too stupid or you think is too foolish or, or of course, everyone else here knows the answer to this. Um, that's, maybe, that's, maybe that's true. <laughs> but uh, the point is that uh, if you don't understand something or something can be clarified, please just... Uh, uh, do inquire and uh, and bring it up because I'm more than happy to help try and uh, uh, shed some light on on uh, different areas. So the main themes that we've we've been looking at over the last f- uh, five weeks, um, six weeks, have been establishing the quality of concentration, focus, um, development of insight uh, and wisdom and uh, how wisdom relates to to compassion and the practices of uh, contemplation and reflection, how these different elements all fit together. So just in these few weeks, this is covering a pretty broad range of, of uh, essential elements of, of Buddhist meditation. Um, so this evening, the, the aim is to, to talk about the kind of difficulties that we encounter with pretty much any of these areas of meditation. It's uh, very non-specific and even crosses um, religious boundaries. So when you, you talk about um, uh, doing meditation or contemplative prayer with Christians and you start talking about these same kind of themes, they all start nodding in agreement because, yes, it's exactly the same whether you're a Christian or you're, or you're, or you're a Buddhist, that everyone has trouble with either a, trying to, to keep the chattering mind from, from taking over the entire show, or B, you know, falling asleep and missing the whole thing. <laughs> so whether you're a Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, 
uh, it doesn't really matter. I remember at an ordination ceremony of one of, uh, of a, a young man in our community, his sister came and she'd been a, a nun in a Hindu tradition. They were Slovenian, actually, the family. And she'd been a nun in a Hindu, Hindu tradition for about 10 years and she had this very sort of dramatic, bright orange robes and this kind of really spiffy turban. And, uh, and so everyone's like, wow, she must, this must be this really serious, super-duper yogi. And then uh, halfway through the ceremony, people start noticing her kind of nodding off, saying, oh, she's just like us, you know. <laughs> the Hindu, obviously, Buddhists and Hindus have a great deal in common. <laughs> Hindu dullness does not vary very much from Buddhist dullness. All paths lead up the same mountain. So, so anyway, I thought I would talk about some of the, the, the sort of um, standard obstacles, hurdles, and, and pitfalls that uh, we encounter in meditation. And uh, these are classically divided up into five different um, qualities. Um, so the first is that of, of uh, sense desire, karma chanda, it's called. So that is the, the mind hungering for um, some pleasure uh, so that you find yourself um, when you're sitting down to meditate rather than, say, um, the mind staying on the, the desired meditation object then uh, you, uh, you hear a sound like you hear a, a piece of music playing in a, from a building nearby and uh, the mind gets enraptured by the, the music. Or maybe there's no music available, so you just conjure some up of your own and start uh, singing songs to yourself. Or, um, or maybe you're hungry. Oftentimes on meditation retreats, um, they have uh, different disciplines around food and mealtimes, and so there's no, no uh, supper in the evening. So my own teacher, Ajahn Chah, would describe how when he was a novice, uh, in the monastery in, in northeast Thailand, he would visualize Chinese noodles. Hallucinate, he would hallucinate noodles. He said it would be so strong he could taste them going into his mouth. He could feel them you know, sliding across his tongue. And, uh, or they have these um, little bananas that are, uh, are called fragrant bananas. Gloe Hom, they're called in Thai. And he said he could actually he could smell them. Sitting in the meditation hall, his mouth would be just pouring with saliva. And he could tell, he could smell them, he could taste them, he could feel them on his tongue. Just the, the kind of hungering of the body for something to eat and just fantasizing. Um, wouldn't it be marvelous just to have a, a, a fragrant banana? What he, what he wouldn't do for a bowl of Chinese noodles? Yes, fantasizing desperately. So that these kind of... Um, this is the obstacle of, of sense desire, uh, the mind uh, drawn by the, the appeal of some kind of sound or a smell or a taste or a thought or uh, a, a, a passion. Another of the, the um, wonderful stories I was just reading the other day was of uh, um, when the city, before the city of 10,000 Buddhas opened up, they had a, another monastery back down in the city in the mission district in an old mattress factory. And uh, one of the, the monks, he was actually a novice in the early days, he had been in the U.S. Navy, and he was a very kind of big, strapping guy, and they had this rule of a uh, strict one meal a day rule. And uh, 
he um, every so often as a novice he could still use money and so he every so often the the monastery fare would not re- really be able to kind of cut it with his desires and so he'd go down and hit the pie shop <laughs> and uh, he, one day he went out to the pie shop and and, and and gorged himself in all these pies and there was even after he filled himself full there was just there was one pie left that he just didn't have room for no matter how hard he tried so he he stashed the pie in his in his bag and went back to the monastery and and even though he'd stuffed himself stupid and he couldn't imagine ever you know, being hungry again around about three or four in the afternoon that little familiar rumbling started happening and the next thing he knew he started fantasizing about this pie and they had very very strict discipline so it was like totally verboten to to eat anything in the evening but all through the evening meditation and the, the master's dharma talk he kept thinking the pie the pie I've got a really juicy berry pie in my bag. So this pie was burning a hole in his bag. And finally, he, as one does sometimes in these occasions, he thought, well, I don't care what the karmic result of this is. I can't stand it. It's just too much trouble. I'm just going to do it. Munch and be damned. <laughs> so uh, he, planned, he planned it all out. And after everyone, because they get up at three in the morning then, so... He uh, he waited till everyone had retired and and then went up the fire escape through the window up the fire escape onto the onto the roof of the monastery and he settles himself down behind the chimney stack and and he gets the pie out of his bag and ah and just takes one mouthful and ah this is nirvana this is absolute total bliss ah this is really worth it. And then he hears the sound of feet on the fire escape. He thinks, what? <laughs> this is 10 o'clock at night. No one comes up on the roof at night time. And so he thought, quick, do something. So he then starts pretending he's doing walking meditation, walking around the top of the, <laughs> of the building. Very you know, diligently and or, you know, in a very kind of dignified, austere manner, kind of doing, here am I, the religious devotee, carrying on with my... My, my meditation through the, the, the small hours of the night. And then, um, but you can't imagine who it is, and so then over the parapet, there appears the master, of course, the abbot of the monastery. Pops over the fire escape, and, and mimicking the exact same posture, starts doing walking meditation in the opposite direction. <laughs> so he's walking along with his eyes down on the ground, and then the, the master walks past him once, in exactly the same posture, diligent, ardent, focused completely on the meditation, and by this time his heart's doing about 200 beats a minute, and pouring sweat, and finally on the third round, as they cross each other, the master stops and looks him in the face and says, how does it feel? And gives him a big, a big smile and says, eat your pie. <laughs> And then they, all, they both crack up with laughter and he, he walks up and leaves him in peace. So, there's, uh, I could spend all night telling desire stories. But. So these are the kind of things that can drag the mind away when we meditate. So, the Buddha used a number of analogies to describe um, these states. So one was, he described the, the five um, obstructions to meditation um, in terms of water so that the sense desire is like when water has got dye in it. 
like the water has been coloured, like yellow or green or blue or red or or whatever, so that the water the the water of the mind is has got an added pigment in it. It's kind of coloured. It's, it's it's changed from its original state. Also, um, he used an analogy of being in debt, so that when the mind is caught up in a in a state of sense desire, then it's like being in debt. And then when we free the heart from sense desire, when we say well, I know that pie is burning a hole in my bag, but I, I could probably survive the night if I didn't eat it. And actually, I almost certainly will feel a lot happier <laughs> if I resist this desire, if I let go of this desire rather than pursue it. Uh, if I just let that go, will I be incomplete? And so then, that uh, in that moment of letting go, of recognizing that feeling of desire and uh, kind of looking at the, the painful result of it, or once you've already followed it, seeing the kind of uh, painful, the, the, the kind of uh, painful or embarrassing result of following it, then um, we, uh, we recognize that. And so we break free of that, the kind of the thrall, the pull of that, that energy. So this is like, the Buddha said, this is like being free of debt. It's like when you've, you've paid off a debt, that sense of, ah, a quality of relief. So that's like the heart having let go of that pull towards some sense object, some sense desire. So the next one is is, is negativity or aversion, ill will, where that music is playing in the house next door and it's really irritating. And you wish you would shut up. And then you, you think of all the things that you're going to do to the neighbors to force them to stop annoying you because you're trying to meditate and you're sure all the terrible karma they're creating by interrupting your, your spiritual life. <laughs> and so that we create this whole story, this kind of negativity out of, out of this, this sound. And uh, maybe uh, uh, one of, in one of the earlier sessions I told the story of when Ajahn Chah was, was visiting a little monastery in London and it was a very small place and, and probably the same number of people as they hear this evening were packed into a space about a, a fifth or a sixth of the size little upstairs room in a house in London. It's really steamy, which is pretty rare for a night in London, <laughs> even in summer. In England, it's banner headlines if it goes over 80 degrees. So that uh, it was a kind of hot, steamy night in London, and, and Ajahn Chah was visiting from Thailand, so everyone was very revved up about, oh, great master visiting from the Far East. And so... Uh, They'd sit there and everything would get kind of hotter and hotter and hotter and then they'd open the windows but there was loud rock music playing in the pub across the way. And so as soon as they opened the windows, they'd be like, So then they'd cool down a bit but the, new, the music would get, uh, get loud, would be really loud and so then people would start muttering and shuffling and then they'd close the windows again and then the room would start heating up. And Sergeant Char let them cook like this for about an hour and a half. They sat there and everyone's looking at the bell thinking, he's got to ring it soon, please. <laughs> so going, shuttling between raucous music and getting overheated. and Finally, when Ajahn Chah liberated them, rang the bell, the first thing he said was, you think that the sound is annoying you, but actually it's you that's annoying the sound. The sound is just what it is. It's not there trying to upset you, it's just doing what sound is supposed to do. If there's annoyance, it's only coming from one place. You. <laughs> so, 
this, uh, the, the ease with which the mind moves into ill will, negativity towards external objects or towards pain in the body, it's so easy to resent that pain in our knee. Any of us who've tried to sit on the floor for more than 10 minutes, half an hour, aches and pains in the body, it seems so reasonable to, to hate that. If only I didn't have this pain in my knee, I would be happy. If only I could get rid of this, of, of this obsessive thought, I'd never ask for anything else ever again. If I could just stop thinking this ridiculous thought, if I could stop thinking of that irritating pop song, if I could just get rid of that terrible tune. Oftentimes on retreats we, we uh, end up here obsessively churning up in the mind songs that we don't even like. There's a famous meditation teacher, an American meditation teacher, uh, Joseph Goldstein would tell the story of how he was on a solitary retreat in a cabin by a stream one time and, the, and he got so obsessed with the way that the stream was playing the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> he, was actually re, he actually was reduced to going out and moving the rocks in the stream. <laughs> so he would stop playing this, this aggravating tune. <laughs> so the problem is not the rocks usually can be, but usually it's not the rock, it's the mind that's the problem. And so the Buddha uh, described this uh, quality of ill will or negativity. He said this is like water that is boiling. It's like water that's heated and, and is bubbling. Uh, and that uh, also another analogy. See, I've got my script this evening for a change. This is my... Because <laughs> I forget which way around these things go. So the... Uh, Hatred and aversion is like being in a state of sickness. So that it's like when the body is sick, then we're, we're in a state of... It's like hatred is like being in a uh, state of disease. And when we recognize what we're doing, like, hey, you know, the sound is just the sound. I actually, I would, if I put that music on, I enjoy it. When the neighbor puts it on, I call it ruining my meditation. What is this? You know, oh yeah, it's just my mind creating a problem when there isn't one. So, in a similar way, we can recognize that we're creating that. Or that the tension and fear and aversion towards a pain in our leg, and we say, if we just relax the body, relax the attitude towards it, and realize, if I let go of this and just let the pain be the pain rather than my big problem or incipient trip to the, the emergency room, if I just leave it alone and relax with it, allow it to be the way it is, then the actual level of pain diminishes rapidly, uh, enormously. So that, you know, when we relax the body around the feeling of pain, it goes from like a, a level six pain to a level three or four. And then we find that when we relax our attitude towards it, and when we were talking about loving-kindness practice, we spoke about this a lot, then even though the, the pain is still there, the, a sort of level three or four, I mean, I'm just kind of making these numbers up, there's no official range of <laughs> pain degrees. We find that even though it's, it's uncomfortable, it's absolutely not a problem. So this is letting go of aversion. This is like being free from sickness, that feeling of, of relief. So then the next um, of, the, uh, of the obstructions and, and hindrances to meditation is known uh, in the wonderful in Buddhist jargon uh, by the wonderful term 
sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor, which kind of, when you're in the, in the sort of, been hanging around the Buddhist meditation world, it sort of rolls off the tongue like everyone goes around the supermarket talking about sloth and torpor. But uh, it's a, a, one, a, a wonderful pair of terms because it's referring to this dull, heavy, um, not quite asleep, not quite awake states of mind. And so that what, you often, what often happens when you start to learn to practice meditation, in the beginning the mind is so sort of busy and agitated and bouncing around all over the place and the body is so sort of tense or uncomfortable that um, it's, it's impossible to think of it not being a very kind of alert, you know, the mind in a very keen state or very aroused. After a while you've trained the mind to focus a bit, the body has got used to sitting in a cross-legged posture and and everything sort of calms down somewhat. And this is what, when you, when, you, when you notice in a monastery, the really new people, they're always sitting bolt upright like this. Very keen and awake, because their, mind is, their minds are thinking 16 things at once. And their bodies are sort of uncomfortable and tense. After someone's been there about three or four months, six months, eight months, <laughs> they've got a nice kind of relaxed sway to them. And, you realize they're really settling into the life. <laughs> Not anagarica leaf, of course. So. <laughs> but uh, so that this, um, this is easy. Once there's uh, the kind of uh, arousing, um, painful or arousing, uh, stimulating influences sort of abate a little bit, then the mind just goes into this other gear because, you know, we, we don't really know of anything between full ahead or dead stop. You know, if we're alert, that means we're afraid, we're excited, we're frightened, we're irritated. And if we're peaceful, we're zoned out. We're just, we're not feeling anything. We're kind of switched off. But to be alert and peaceful, we don't know that. So it's, it's the, this is the great meditator's disease is sloth and torpor, dullness. In the Pali language, in the Buddhist language, this is called tinamita. Tinamita. So karma chanda is sense desire, bayapada is ill will. Tinamita is dullness. So there are many, many little tricks to the, of the trade. So I can demonstrate. So the way, to, the way that dullness works is like sleep happens in waves. And so that the trick, the, the main um, problem, the reason why dullness is like the great meditator's disease is because the very means by way you would work with it are not accessible to you because you're fast asleep. So you can't think, oh, what shall I do about this dullness? Because there's not enough sharpness to even think of that most of the time. We're already lost in that heavy state. And also, it can be very peaceful. I remember saying when when I was a, a new novice at the monastery in Thailand, I'd say, you know, my meditation's so much better in the morning. You know, in the evening, it's just I'm, it's so much pain in my legs and I'm being eaten by the mosquitoes, and it's just so uncomfortable. It's just those those sittings go for hour, you know, go for on and on and on. It's only an hour, but it just time goes so slow. In the morning, my my meditation's so much better. You know, just you know, just goes by in a flash, and then. This other novice said, well, yeah, because you're fast asleep. I said, what? He said, oh, yeah, you're totally out of it. I said, no, I'm not. What do you mean? 
but he wasn't fooled at all. He said, no, you're totally, you, you, your head's halfway down to the floor. You, you know, you're, you're only semi-conscious. It's not, you're, you're not sort of in deep samadhi, you're just... <laughs> so sometimes we can feel like, we're, you know, it can be very deceptive, so we can, we can feel like we're wide awake and we can, we can say, oh yeah, my meditation's really going good here. Yeah, very peaceful, calm. Yeah, everything's really fine. Yeah, I'm dead concentrated. Absolutely no problems in my sitting at all. Wow, I can even feel my third eye starting to open. The strange pressure on my forehead. So that strange pressure can be <laughs> can just be the carpet. So, so the trick is to ca- when you know that you're prone to dullness. Your friends have told you, <laughs> <laughs> or you've been having, or you've woken up with your nose on the carpet. Then the trick is to to catch it at the first wave. So this is the main the main methodology. So one of the things you can do, I'll just use the the, the famous bell striker. Um, that you, to use a matchstick or some little stick between your hands. So if you hold it, this is a bit bit too heavy for that. So if you hold it between your thumbs like that, if, you, if my thumbs are in my lap, right? If you hold a little match or a or some stick between your thumbs, then as soon as the mind starts to get dull, the the fingers start relaxing. So what will happen is that the oops the the match or whatever it is you're holding will fall into your hands as soon as the the thumbs start to to drop. So then that's a cue. Like oh, that's the first wave has arrived. So then to open the eyes, to kind of straighten the spine, and to to then what you'll find is that there's another wave comes just past that and you'll, the, the eyes will start blurring and the body will want to droop but if you just resist that and just don't go with it then after maybe one or two other little waves then it will pass off and it disappears and so then uh, it's a, uh, a very uh, easy way of counteracting that tendency also another thing that you can do is just using your vision like you open your eyes and then focus on a candle flame or some object in front of you. And as soon as the vision starts to blur or to separate, you know that you're going. And if you, if you realize that you're sleeping, you say, okay, better open my eyes. And then you know, you're not quite sure whether you are really sleepy or not. And they say, okay, I better open my eyes. I better, I better open my eyes. Then you know, yeah, I am sleepy. <laughs> if the eyes weren't open, that's a sure sign. That, uh, so that um, there, there are also many other little tricks you can do. One of the favorite ones is also is to take something like a matchbox or, or, or a book and put it on your head. It's actually easier if you're, if you're shaven-headed. He- it doesn't really work if you've got a hairdo. <laughs> it's trickier, but you put something on your head like that. And so then, uh, then as soon as, as you start to nod, off it drops. This is very good if you're, if you're sitting with a group of other people, because then you offset your dullness with pride. <laughs> you see, you don't look bad in front of other people. So then you use your vanity to counteract your dullness. <laughs> it's called offsetting one problem with another. So, so that, but that's also a very, very easy way. Just as the body starts to droop, then you notice it. It, uh, maybe it looks a little bit strange, but sometimes if, if, you can, if you've really developed a bad habit of f- 
falling into dullness, then you'll do anything <laughs> to try and just be able to catch it as it begins. So then dullness um, is uh, equated with having water that's covered in algae, pondweed, kind of scummy water that's all sort of sludgy, impenetrable. That's the sort of, the, like the mind is covered over with this layer of, of, uh, of, of algae. You, know, you might be very fond of algae, <laughs> but it doesn't make the water very clear. You can't, you know, it won't reflect anything. It's a kind of a dull, uh, uh, heavy quality. Or the, also the Buddha re- um, equated this with uh, being in prison being in a state of prison, and when the mind is free from dullness, when we've broken through that or learned to, to not let that take root, then this is like being free from prison or having the water that's free from the, the pondweed. So then the opposite of dullness, which I, I can refer to a little bit before, is, is restlessness. And this has the wonderful uh, name in the Buddhist language of Udacha Kukucha, like it even feels itchy, <laughs> sounds itchy. You've got the udacha kukuchas. <laughs> so it means restlessness, agitation, fretting. The fretful, worrying, agitated, restless, fidgeting mind. So this is the, the opposite of dullness. It's like when you've got too much energy and, it's, and the whole body is, is unbalanced. And so the, the Buddha equated this with water which is being blown by the wind or, or stirred up and agitated. So then, for, for restlessness, then the um, uh, the main thing to do is to to really uh, bring the attention into the body, and then particularly using um, the kind of body sweeping I've been describing in the sittings to to just relax each part of the body. Uh, also using the breath, and particularly the out breath, the quality of the out breath to just uh, help uh, let the body you know blow off some steam and to just you know, lose that um, sort of stirred up, agitated, turbulent quality. And then the Buddha described this as um, uh, when one's caught up in slavery, uh, sorry, when one's caught up in, in restlessness, it's by, like being enslaved. Right? And when we're free from that restlessness, then that's like being freed from a state of, of slavery and um, being subject to the, the demands of another. So this can not just be physical restlessness, but also mental restlessness, that kind of just agitated, busy, busy, busy quality. Uh, but in the same way, just uh, c- continually coming to the breath, calming the body, relaxing the body is a, a very good way of dealing with restlessness. And I mean, again, like, like with dullness, there's, there's thousands of cures and ways to work with this. Another method that my own teacher, Ajahn Chah, would recommend is just go out and do walking meditation very fast. Like, uh, like just walking as quickly as you can, just kind of pound the path up and down for at least you know, half an hour, three quarters of an hour. And just basically exhaust yourself. <laughs> very simple. Just, just physically burn off a lot of that energy. And then, uh, and then come back to, to the, the sitting or to, to just then uh, bring the mind to a, a more steady focus. And then the, uh, the last of, of these um, hurdles and, and pitfalls is, um, is the quality of doubt, the mind caught in uncertainty. 
And this is not the uncertainty of um, you know the wise reflection on the the uh, the transitory and, and uh, unstable nature of of all things. But this is what should I do next? What should I have for supper? Should I move now? Should I not move now? <laughs> Who am I? What, what am I? Where am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Should I change my career? Should I change my partner? Should I change the wallpaper? <laughs> Should I dye my hair? Change my glasses? Should I stop asking myself stupid questions? <laughs> what should I do about to get rid of this doubt? Yeah. So that uh, doubt is rather like Udacha Kukucha. It's called Vichikicha. Got, when you've got the witchy kichas. And this is the mind caught in endless questioning and speculating and, and indecision. It's a sort of Libran problem. You know, the, the <laughs> <laughs> Asking forgiveness for all the Librans here, but uh, I know that uh, there are several Librans who live at the monastery who continually talk about uh, indecision or having... And I remember one time, many, many years ago, I had no particular interest or knowledge in astrology, but the, the day it caught my attention was I'd had a weekend party. There was about a couple of dozen people been staying down at the place where I lived in the country, in, in England, in the countryside. And there was a car full of my friends going back to London, and another batch of people were staying at the house. And there was this guy standing in the doorway with one foot inside the house and one foot outside the house. And, uh, and the people in the car were saying, well, are you coming or are you staying? And he was just like paralyzed in the doorway. <laughs> and then this other friend of mine said, Are you a Libran? <laughs> he said, How did you know? <laughs> so Librans or not, I'm not going to malign Librans for, for indecisive capacities. But uh, that state of mind where we're just caught in a dilemma and, not, and what, where doubt really takes over is in the situation... Of, of doubt when it's a real problem like this it's like when we try to think our way to the end of a doubt so doubt is like a courtroom battle and no matter how many um, how much you build up the evidence for one side the, the, the other lawyer will always come up for an argument with an argument to, to counteract it because that's what the lawyers are paid to do right? I mean, there are probably some lawyers in the room I mean it's like that's the job is to come up with a counter argument and so even when you get a judgment and finally, you know, the, the case is decided. You just go to appeal and, and you run it all again. <laughs> and then you take it to a higher court and a higher court and a higher court. So the, the doubting mind will always be piling up evidence for A against B and B against A. So the fact is, we can't think our way to the end of a doubt. So then the, how do we deal with doubt? How do we actually get the mind to drop that endless speculating and uncertainty? So that uh, the, the best way is to step out of the doubt. To actually recognize this is a state of doubt. This is a state of doubt. It's telling me there's something missing. It's telling me that I'm this ambulatory question that's missing its answer. And when I get the answer, I'll be complete. Just like when I get rid of this pain in my knee, I'll be happy. When I get hold of the Chinese noodles, I'll be happy. When I remember the words to that song, I'll be happy. <laughs> that's, what it, that's its message. It's, it's lie, really. And so then, rather than believing in the story of it, the lie of it, 
to say, oh, this is a doubt. This is complete in and of itself. It's telling me there's a bit missing, but actually, this is a complete thing. So just to tell our last story, um, a number of years ago, um, myself and another monk were the, were the kind of secretaries and sort of Mr. Fixits of this large monastery in England called Amravati, where they had a resident community of about 50 or 60 people and a lot of stuff happening. And when anything needed to be done or fixed or decided, people would come to the office and they'd they come with their particular problem and say, what are we going to do about the roof on the nun's vihara? What are we going to do about the water tank? What are we going to do about this teaching engagement? What are we going to do about... What? And so, over and over again, I would find myself having taken responsibility or having picked up this person's problem and, and I would find myself taking care of it. And this other monk, who had an equal set of duties, always managed to avoid it. And I thought, how does he do that? Every time, how come I get landed with all of this stuff? I, you know, it's kind of our job, but how come it's always landing on my desk and not his? And then I started to notice when someone says, "What are we going to do about the the the, the felt on this roof? What are we going to do about the water tank? What are we going to do about?" And I would say, "Well, we could do this, or we could do that, or, or I could call the you know the roofer and and uh, what about such and such." And I would come up with solutions. I would come up with advice. I would come up with, would say, well, let me find out about it for you. And then I began to notice that when, when, other, when, when people came in the room, the way he would respond would be to say, good question. <laughs> what are we going to do about the, what are we going to do about the cells on the roof? What are we going to do about the water tank? Good question. <laughs> and I, when I first realized he did this, I thought, you rat. <laughs> That's evil. How did you figure that one out? And of course, I was most annoyed because he'd been doing this for years and I hadn't noticed. You know. And he wasn't actually being lazy or, or kind of malicious. It was just he'd figured out this very skillful response and I just hadn't figured it out. So this is the way, one of the great ways to respond to doubt when the mind is begging for an answer. What should I do? Should I, is this the time to carry on with meditation on the breath? Should I go and do a body sweeping? Should I drop the breath and go and do insight practice? What should I do? Good question. <laughs> or, this is a doubt. Doubts arise and pass away. So any way that we can to sort of get some leverage on it and to step out of the, the text of the doubt and to, out of that structure that says, if I just had the answer to this, I would be happy. Any way to step out of that and say, oh, this is a, this is a feeling. There's a question here. The universe will not be completed if I get the answer to this question. The universe is complete already. It's just there's a thing that is not known. That's all. So then we're able to uh, shed that kind of uh, tyranny that the doubting mind can, can bring. And many, some people have very little problem with this. Uh, for some it's a, it's a huge deal. But this is the fifth of the, the five main hurdles and pitfalls. And so the Buddha said, doubt is like being in a desert. It's like being a, making a long journey through a desert and getting through doubt, getting to the other side of doubt, dropping a doubt, is like uh, getting through a desert safely. Another uh, way of, of resolving it um, is uh, the, um, a Christian monk who's a friend of ours called Brother David Steindlrast, um, would talk, talk about the, uh, the three principal 
vows of Christian monasticism, uh, renunciation, celibacy, and um, obedience uh, in terms of different conundrums. And, and his, uh, the way he talked about obedience was uh, the, with the conundrum of when you drop the question, the answer appears. And so obedience is about listening. That comes from the Latin, ob audiens, to be completely listening. And so, just as we were talking about compassion last week and this practice of listening, a lot of, of getting through doubt is really employing that same kind of process, like dropping the question, being able to say, good question, or this is only a question. It's the complete thing in and of itself. It's like dropping the question. Then what you find is that the answer appears that is in a way that you, you let a bit of space be around the doubt. And then the answer arises um, from an intuition of your own heart. So that you can't think your way to the end of a doubt. But when we leave it alone, we let some space happen around it, some space be around it, then we, uh, in a way, can tap into our own intuition uh, a lot more easily. So um, the Buddha said this was like the mind being in a state of doubt is like uh, cloudy water, like muddy water. But not only muddy water, but muddy water uh, in a bowl in a dark cupboard. <laughs> so that's uh, he kind of describes as the heaviest one. That kind of burns up most of our energy. So uh, that's the, um, the, uh, the five, uh, a kind of a short description of the main five sets of problems. So uh, we'll have a, a little sitting now, um, and uh, then there'll be time for some questions. So if you want to just stretch your legs for a moment before we have the sitting period, please do so for uh, just for a minute. Debbie, Ajahn Sundra, and Ajahn Chandasiri are all Libuans. Piscean's about it's all the all the double signs, all the Piscean's, Gemini's, and Libra's.
Centering the attention in the body, first of all, just establishing the, the spine in the center of our attention. Just letting it stretch a little and grow upwards. Helping to lend a quality of alertness, energy. And then around the spine, just let the rest of the body relax and soften. And slowly sweeping the attention through all the different parts of the body and wherever you find any kind of tightness, tension, the body clenched up in the face, the shoulders, stomach, the legs, wherever it might be. Just consciously let yourself relax there. So we establish the body in a a balance of, of energy and relaxation. The body both alert, upright, but completely at ease, at rest.
and to help sustain our attention in the present moment, just narrowing the field of focus onto the breath. It's this simple gentle pattern of feelings, the body breathing at its own rhythm. Just let this be the very center of our attention. The sounds we hear, the rustling leaves, the cars on the road, my voice, letting these be around the perimeter, feelings of the body, different thoughts that arise, just let them be at the edges. Let the feeling of the breath just be the very central marker, the heart of our attention. Just taking this simple exercise to be what we aim our attention at for the next few minutes, next little while. Whatever else arises in our, our mind is important to be figured out, calculated, planned, recollected, fought against, chased after. Whatever of these hindrances, these five different obstacles that might arise, let's try to work with them in some of the ways I've been describing, whatever it is that manifests. Whether it's agitation, sense desire, irritation, dullness, doubt. As the drift occurs in, in one of those directions or another, just try to apply the kind of advice that I was giving. Feeling that state of, of being in a desert or in debt, imprisoned. And then when free of that particular obstacle, when we've let it go, let it settle, let it fade, just noticing that quality of freedom from disease, out of debt, out of the desert. Just notice how good that feels. We don't have to create particular problems, they'll arise on their own. Just keep the attention as fully as we can with the breath, and just let these, these minutes of meditation, next 10, 15, 20 minutes, just unfold as they will, working with different obstacles as they arise. And if there's no obstacles, just enjoy the present. Open the heart to the present.
if we're irritated by a, a feeling counteracting irritation, ill will with loving kindness, open-heartedness, acceptance. It's an interesting sexual fantasy, counteracting that by contemplating the, the downside of pursuing desire. If you really got what you wanted, we had to live with that for a, in that state for a year, ten years, a hundred years. How would that be? For drifting into dullness, counteract that by straightening the spine, opening the eyes, rousing energy. For experiencing restlessness, following the outbreath really closely, fully to its end, calming the body, letting the body settle fully and completely. If it's doubt, what am I supposed to do? Is this the right thing? What am I doing here? What was I going to do this evening? Stepping out of the doubt. This is a good question. Just working with all these different drifting and these drifts and pulls, these currents blown by the wind, pulled by the tide, tugged by the current, nudged by the different sea creatures, shoved by the engine all these different forces pulling and tugging in different directions. It's working, adjusting, sensitive to the different kinds of force working on the mind, adjusting, accommodating, counteracting, sustaining this quality of balance here in the center.
please feel free to um, ask any questions. Or this is a, a legal moment for doubts. So please feel free to ask anything that was about anything I said that was unclear or, or um, didn't make sense or lost you completely. Please, no one chimed in earlier on, but please, uh, if there is anything that people would like to ask about, I'd be happy to try and clarify or explain a little bit. Yes? This is not from tonight's lecture, but from a couple of lectures ago. When you talked about being critical of others, you said there are mm-hmm. several things to consider mm-hmm. in that. Would you be good enough to repeat those, please? Uh, sure. This is the five uh, criteria that you should uh, bear in mind when, one is, when giving uh, negative feedback or criticism. So the first is, um, well, you can have them in different orders, but say, okay, number one is um, to ask permission of the person to bring something up with them. And the second one is to choose an appropriate time and place uh, so that you're not kind of putting them on the spot in front of people unnecessarily. Um, the third one is to uh, stick to the facts. Not always easy. So not going on hearsay or supposition or what you're deducing from where someone was coming from. Like you just stick to what you know, you know is, is true according to events. And then um, to, uh, the fourth one is to speak with a heart of loving kindness to not be coming from a place of self-righteousness or negativity, um, but a genuine uh, wish for the person's welfare and the, the kind of welfare of, of, uh, of uh, all beings rather than just venting your own spleen, not like kind of my welfare first, because it will make me feel good to you know, venge myself on this person. <laughs> And then the last one is to be free of the same fault yourself. That's the kicker. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, I, just, I remember that too, but as a process, it seems to me that you, had, you said something else about three things about if it's going to hurt somebody. Or yeah, the. Well, those. Those were um, the criteria for when to speak or when not to speak. So that was um, so basically the three um, elements are if something is true or untrue, whether it's uh, pleasant to hear or unpleasant to hear, and whether it's useful or not useful. Right? Those are the three dimensions they works on. And so then the Buddha said that he would only say something to somebody if it was true, if it was, and if it was useful. And if, whether it was pleasant to hear or unpleasant to hear was not crucial, but he would choose the right time and situation to, to say something. <coughs> so whether something, if something was true and pleasant to hear, but it wasn't useful, then he wouldn't say it. Or if it was... Um, true and pleasant to hear, but, uh, sorry, if it was true and, and unpleasant to hear, 
if it was useful, he would pick the right time to say it. This kind of... Uh, I mean, you have to sort of pick them up and chew them over, but those are the criteria. And then just that sense of, well, how do you decide when's the right time? You can't really do it by formula. And, and I think la- uh, last week and on our earlier sessions we were talking a lot about intuition or intuitive wisdom and this quality of listening. So there's like an... Uh, and this, like this evening talking about Brother David's uh, phrase of when you drop the question, the answer appears. So there's a, a, a deep listening to the moment. Like, say, okay, is this the right time to tell her? Or is this not right? And you're not trying to figure it out by logic, but really just listening to your own heart, like consulting your own intuition, your feel for the moment, and letting that guide you. So I'm just I'm, uh, a curiosity arises in my mind. Like, oh, there's one a question at the back. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I like that whole thing. Is that's the last one where you have to be free of the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to speak to my parents because I would appreciate help from people who are not perfect. <laughs> and who are also just stumbling the way through life like the rest of us. Um, if, if it's coming from a good place. Yeah. Uh, it's really coming from <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And I think that if if there is something like that that you know you want to bring up with someone, then you 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 can preface that in a very sincere way, like saying, I know I'm not free of anger myself in any way. Um and then and they say, Well maybe it's because I'm not free from it that I realise how painful it is. So you know, I, I wanted to talk with, with you about those angry states that, that you find yourself in. And so you can kind of ease into it in that way. So, I mean, the, these are guidelines, they're not rigid um, structures. And so that certainly that kind of a way of, of speaking about it, it's trying to guard against um, that you know what, uh, what Jesus said about the um, the speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a beam, you know, of a great log in your own. <laughs> that we're, the tendency is to be finding fault with others and ignoring our own faults. Uh, so it's really like own, the, owning our own limitations and then having owned them and really acknowledge that, then speaking from that that position. That. Clarify? Sorry? Yeah. Could you elaborate on working with sense desire by imagining yourself in that state for a hundred years or any other helpful hints <laughs> you might have? <laughs> well, it's just like, say, you're having a fantasy, and there you are, lo- you know, say a sexual fantasy, and you're locked in some glorious embrace with someone. Now, that, the, the, the delight of that depends on transiency, right? Because if you imagine yourself, there you are, 
in some wonderful embrace, and then it goes on for an hour. I think, well, that's all right. Then a day, without without moving. There you are. It's like, well, it kind of loses its glamour after, a, you know, ten or twelve hours, and then a day it starts to be work, and and then a, a year that's like cruel and inhuman punishment, right? And then ten years, like, when am I ever going to get out of this this bed? You know? <laughs> I've had enough of this person. We've been we've been breathing each other for ten years now. You know? Gonna, you know, and so that you s- the the kind of attractiveness of of that, or like whatever else it might be, you know, like a wonderful piece of music. If you just go and playing, you know, Beethoven's Ninth, a hundred and fifty thousand times, you know, it would it loses its pull, you know, that there's a um, that kind of dependency of of uh, something that's sensually appealing or attractive, that we don't realize the dependent nature of it. And so that sometimes when you follow things through, like, uh, it's like, if you just say yes and then, and then, and then, and then, then what often happens is that if you just pick it up and and follow it through, uh, then you get this little voice in the mind that says, shut up! (laughs) Because you're kind of getting on the case of the desire mind. It's like you've, you've called its bluff. And it's like it only works if you... It's like, a, like the, the, a card trick. You know, it only works if you can't quite see what the hands are doing. So um, those kind of... Uh, uh, it's like um, using the imagination to see the downside of, of a, a, an imagined or a, desi- you know, a desired thing like if you just calmly and steadily think it through. Because when you, the mind is pulled by a desire, it's like, oh, if only I had that banana, if only I had those noodles, if only I, I could get hold of such and such. Then the, the, the lie that we're hearing at that time is that the universe has shrunk to such an extent that if there was just this one thing that was there, I would be totally happy. And then, in some ways, if you, when you get familiar with this, then and if you just, it's like bringing it into the center of the stage and shining the light on it and just saying, oh yes, oh really? <laughs> You'd never want anything ever again. Shut up! <laughs> You're ruining the whole thing. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's why in nightclubs the lights are always very dim. <laughs> Not that I go to nightclubs, but... <laughs> I remember these things. <laughs> kind of dim red light so that you can't see all the kind of wrinkles and cracks. You can keep the illusion going. You know, they have bright lights in McDonald's because they want to move people through quickly. It, you don't feel comfortable in the bright light because you can kind of see everything. It all shows. So kind of move them out. Move them along so they don't linger. So the place is never filled up. That's why I was told they always have bright lights in McDonald's. So that, that the desire mind works a lot on keeping the illusion going. Like, I don't know if I told the story of the little Mauve bubble car. Did I tell that here? When I was about three or four, I, I, I grew up in a very, we were a very poor family. Um, we were farmers. And uh, so uh, 
there was very little money around, and so the, the family system was that you only got, the kids only got presents at Christmas or at birthdays. That was it. And so there was, our farm was near this little village, and in the village there was a toy shop. And uh, in, the, uh, in the window of this toy shop, they had these various little toy cars, what they called matchbox cars, little tiny. Yeah, had them here? Right. So this was, I was born in 56. So in the late 50s, there was this kind of car that uh, BMW produced. And I, I've seen a, a couple of these sort of micro-type cars around Ukiah. So they, BMW invented this three-wheeled car with two wheels at the front and one at the back, and a door on the front that opened. The front of the car was a door. People, some people remember those, yeah, those of an age. <laughs> so this was called a bubble car in England. And there was a, 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 a in the toy shop window, there was this little mauve bubble car. And I fell completely in love with it. And every time we went to the village, then I would race to the, the toy shop window and press my nose against the glass and <laughs> be transfixed by this little mauve bubble car. And I begged my mother to buy this little mauve bubble car for me. And I begged, and I begged, and I begged, and I begged. But it wasn't my birthday, and it wasn't Christmas, and so, no, no, no bubble car. And so then, uh, during this time, I remember distinctly saying to her, if you just get me the bubble car, I'll never want anything ever again. I'll never ask for anything ever again. And I sincerely believed at that age, that I really believed that was true, because I couldn't imagine wanting anything else. If I had that, I would be utterly complete. <laughs> Mary's already almost in tears with the pathos of this. <laughs> and then, a couple of weeks before my birthday, I was too young to figure this out, you know, but, but a couple of, two or three weeks before my birthday, the little mauve bubble car vanished from the window of the toy shop. Oh! Heartbreak. It's gone. It was too late, too late, and so I was really upset. And, and of course, the toy shop owner was in cahoots with my mother. And so I went in, you know, went inside and said, "Is that little mo bubble car still here?" She said, "Oh no, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, don't know where it's gone. Oh, don't know. Sorry." And so I was, oh dear, broken-hearted. And then suddenly, my birthday comes. Ta-da! There's this little mo bubble car, and of course. I'm utterly enraptured and totally happy and intoxicated for at least a day. <laughs> and then the next day I play with it just a little bit less, and then the third day a little bit less, and by the fourth day it's kind of getting left on the shelf. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, Mom, can I have, you know, a cookie, or can I have... She said, you said that you were never going to want anything ever again. You told me, you promised. And she kind of got on my case, kind of playfully. But she, I said, yeah, but that's, this is different. Yeah. <laughs> now, isn't this a very archetypal situation that we're all familiar with? So that then, uh, and actually, uh, my mother still has the little mauve bubble car. <laughs> this is now a family heirloom. Is, they've moved house about four times since then, but the little mauve bubble car has stayed in the, in the family. So this is the icon, Amaro's icon of desire. <laughs> the little mauve bubble. You know. Well, how many little mauve bubbles do we have? And it could be you know, the next woman, the next guy, the next degree, the next house, the next occupation. 
through this course, if I could just get rid of this guy, if I could just get hold of this woman, if I could just get rid of this illness, if I could just get a hold of, if I, if I, if I, then the universe shrinks and then we just buy into that promise and at that moment we're absolutely sure, like, this is it. And then when it, when we get the moment of gratification, then it's like, there is that, like, biting into the berry pie. Yes! <laughs> and that, there is an a- absolute bliss. <laughs> but it's not going to last. It can't last. And this is not like the Buddha being a sourpuss. It's like, it, <laughs> this is the fact of nature, is it cannot last. We can't stay in bliss because of the bite of pie. For eternity. I mean, if you sat there with the m- mouthful of pie <laughs> an hour, gets pretty, pretty old pretty fast, right? So that, that thinking it through in that way, so it's like a kind of sober reflecting. Not because we want to make ourselves miserable, but just like revealing the, the trick. Like the word glamour is a, is an ancient word, and it's it comes from a um, like uh, when a a, um, a a sorcerer, a kind of a, a, someone who had magical powers, um, would disguise themselves, or like when uh, um, in the in the Odyssey, when uh, Odysseus came back to Ithaca, Athene, who was his pr- protectress, put a glamour on him so that he, he looked like an old man um, and that the people of Ithaca wouldn't recognize him. So that's what a glamour is. It's like a disguise that, that prevents the reality from being seen. <laughs> so the way it's like seeing through the glamour is what that's for. And I mean, there's a lot of us, I mean, we spend a lot of billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars sustaining the glamour. The, uh, a year or so ago, we went to Los Angeles to, to, some, to listen to some of the Dalai Lama's teachings, and the kind of local newspaper, the, there was just like pages and pages and pages and pages of plastic surgery options. <laughs> Incredible! I mean, things that, that people were offering to be tweaked, I didn't even know there were things. <laughs> and tweaking in ways that are just amazingly ingenious to produce effects that you were, you know, it's extraordinary. <laughs> to keep the glamour going. Like, I haven't, didn't see a recent statistic, but in, in 1999, there was $150 billion was spent in the US on plastic surgery and weight loss no. products. $150 billion in one year in the US on plastic surgery and weight loss products. Things to eat to make you weigh less. <laughs> That's a heck of a lot of resources to sustain the glamour. So there is a strong tendency within us that wants to keep the glamour going. So when we're talking about wanting to see through it, that's a sort of with kind of um, in a way it's, a, it's like a reflecting a spiritual maturity, a sort of a growing up within us that says, well, no matter how well you sustain the glamour. <coughs> It can only hold for so long, and it only works 
in certain circles, <laughs> with a light at a certain angle, and uh, and it's not just the physical appearance uh, that I mean, it's in many many aspects of our life. You know, the car you drive, the the degrees you have, the organisations you belong to, the charities you support, the slogan on your T-shirt. You know, there's, there's so much of it. Yeah. Related, but when it happens outside the context of meditation, I often have this little dialogue inside about being in a situation that's very satisfying, very happy, very pleasant. And I'm pretty responsive to things, so I can just really go with it. And there's always this little voice going, Maybe you shouldn't get that excited about it because, you know, we know it's passing. And and so there's always that debate about how much to let oneself really be engaged by the moment. And then, and then the, the dialogue moves on to, well, it's okay, we could be really engaged, and then let it go. But, you know, it doesn't have to be engaged if it weren't just pleasant, so that's probably not, you know, the equation isn't equal. So can you speak to that? This is a, a good question. <laughs> 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 well, so, I mean, it's not—it's not a fixed thing. You know, in a way, you have to look at the results of it. Because the way that often we, we, the way we can really learn about what's the the, the right act, what's right action, is looking at the intention, and then looking at the results of having followed that action. So you're looking at the intention beforehand, the action, what it feels like when you're performing the action, and then looking at the results of it afterwards. So you're just kind of weighing up the whole thing from before, during, and after. So like yesterday, um, we went to uh, the coast. Mr. Goenkaji uh, was giving a talk in Fort Bragg, so um, most of the monastery uh, went out to uh, to the coast. We had a kind of big day out. One of the, the senior nuns of our community was visiting from England, so we made a whole day of it, had a picnic and so on and so forth. And we went to the beach at Elk. And somehow or other, the subject of, of, of skipping stones, do you remember how that came up? Or who started that? Half of us were on one side of the beach, the other half were on Capri, the other side of the beach, and both half were skipping stones. I think I, th- I think what had happened was one of the nuns had been to the to Elk before with one of the, the the people from the group there, and they'd been skipping stones on the pond, and so it came up, and so then everyone was was hunting for flat stones and skipping stones on the sea, and I hadn't I hadn't skipped stones in like 25 years. And so and th- you know there I am on the beach. It was, there was nobody else on the beach except us lot. So. It was uh, there I was, just kind of fully engaged in finding the right stones, the just the right weight and kind of round enough and flat, and waiting for the judging the sea when the sea is just flat enough to get a really good skid, and so on and so forth. So there we are, you know, a bunch of Buddhist monks and nuns, shaven-headed <laughs> renunciates, bopping around on the beach at Elk, <laughs> skipping stones, you know, and uh, you know. So that that same kind of question might come to mind, like, well, is this really worthwhile doing, or what, you know? But it's like you you 
weigh up a situation as you're in it. How does it feel? Is this innocent? Is it useful? Is it enjoyable? Is there a purpose to this? How does it, you know, is it delightful? You know, what, what, what is this? Not that you're trying to be sort of hyper-analytical about everything, but just getting the feel of it. And this was a kind of totally innocent, slightly, you know, playful thing for a, you know, a bunch of us to be doing on the, at the seaside. You know, it's like we were little kids. And why not? Innocent enough. And uh, and then you know the, the looking at the result of it, it was a kind of delightful, you know, innocent, joyful thing to be to be doing together. And the the only negative result is a slightly stiff right arm. <laughs> <laughs> Got a slight kind of ache in my upper arm, not having kind of <laughs> done much of that in the last twenty five years. So you just you you weigh it up to yourself. Now, if it had turned out that some kind of um, high-ranking senior monk from Thailand had just happened to walk on the beach at the same time and saw all of us <laughs> chucking, <laughs> chucking rocks in the sea and then <laughs> that would probably be a much more kind of painful <laughs> aura to it. Or whatever, or if someone got hit in the head by a rock that you know, went the wrong way, then there would be a, oh, that was pretty stupid to have got carried away with all of that. But uh, there was none of that. I think someplace in the, in the wondering about it is that in letting oneself really enjoy something that's happening, given the human propensity to want to do that all the time, if you like it, well, you like it for a little bit more. In meditation, you can say, well, I wouldn't like it if it went on for 12 hours. But in regular life, if you're moving around with lots of people, and it's easy to just sort of be drawn into the liking of it. Mm. And, and then I think this is just reinforcing the kind of attachment to wanting things to be happy and pleasurable and nice. And sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. That's why, like, looking at the intention, like, well, what's behind this? This pull into it. What's behind the pull? What's the effect of it? Do I grab every opportunity for this whenever it arises? Is it always this you know, to seeking another outlet, or can I choose to follow it or not follow it, and does that feel the same? So that then you, you, you weigh it up like that. So, like, like yesterday on the beach, you know, I could just as easily have, have not tossed stones or as tossed them. It wasn't something like I was, or I, I, I don't imagine that next time I go to a beach that I'll be desperate to, to, to find all the flat stones, you know. So that you're seeing the the res the effect in yourself while you're in it, like that kind of yes. <laughs> and then if you notice that's happening, it's like oh, this is a, this has got a big charge to it. I wonder, you know, how much this just sustains the addiction. Because if if you see that 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 the heart is really pulled that way, and it's like well, this is like a junkie having a you know a good supply of clean drug. You know, as long as the supply keeps up, it's fine. But it's when the supply is, is cut off, then then it's, there's a lot of trouble. It's really very very painful. So only we can tell for ourselves the dependency that's there. And that the sure sign is if I could, if it's the same to to be with this or we're not with it, then yeah. then you know. Okay, so we've we've passed the the nine o'clock mark. Another evening has gone by.